Hello, I'm Brian Mastroianni, and welcome back to Resolve Talks, the podcast from Resolve Global Health, where we speak with experts from a wide range of industries about what is holding us back from building healthier societies around the world. When thinking about some of the most pressing conversations in global health today, one that is front and center is the reality that equitable access to needed health care is often closed off by harsh, sometimes impenetrable barriers for many transgender and gender diverse people around the world. Now, this of course varies from community to community, culture to culture, nation to nation, with entrenched cultural norms often pushing against our ever evolving understanding of the gender spectrum. Among the many obstacles trans, non-binary and gender diverse people face, Healthcare settings where providers aren't well versed in the vocabulary needed to provide the most inclusive care possible, while persisting social and health disparities for the most vulnerable members of the greater trans community can often mean life saving care is out of reach. So, joining us today to discuss all of this is Dr. Marcy Bowers, a US based medical pioneer in gender affirmation surgery. Dr. Bowers is a gynecologist and surgeon who currently practices in California, serving as the president of the executive committee and board of directors of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH. She marks among her many historic accomplishments the status of being the first woman globally to perform transgender surgery who is trans herself. Earlier this year, Dr. Bowers spoke with me for an article that we published on our website, where she discussed some of those structural barriers trans people often face as they seek not only gender-affirming care, but healthcare in general. How can we push back against the stigma that's found everywhere? Think medical institutions to the halls of political power to make sure members of the greater trans community globally are able to receive the care they need. Dr. Marcy Bowers, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join, join me today. It's such a pleasure having you here. Thanks, Brian, very much. I'm glad to be here. Of course. Um, well, you know, to start, I thought a good place to begin the conversation. I was struck by this uh, report that came out in 2016 um, in The Lancet, and it looked at, um, you know, global health challenges that face uh, the transgender community. And while it's reported how you know, the presence of these challenges and the fact that they exist. Um, it seems like not a lot delves into um, uh, the fact that um, that these barriers are entrenched in healthcare systems and healthcare access for trans people. Uh, from your perspective, why don't you think um, more attention is paid to the presence of some of these barriers and um, that, that prevent a lot of trans people around the world from getting equitable access to not just gender affirming care, but just healthcare as a whole. Yeah, well, it's a great question, Brian, because um, <clears throat> uh, there's no question that that trans people are undertreated. Um, they they face great obstacles. Um, some of those are um, structural and um, and and logistical uh, barriers, such as uh, you know having the fact that that trans people have to access a diagnosis 
um, in order to receive just basic health care. Um, so they need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Now that has gotten easier and there are efforts to, uh, to remove that kind of uh, gatekeeping, uh, I guess you would call it, um, that we need to see a mental health counselor for uh, in order to be prescribed hormones or to access surgery. You know, these are, these are uh, structural systems. Now they were put into place because there was the basic idea that, that being trans was a, uh, a mental disorder. Uh, fortunately, that now is no longer considered and it's no longer, it no longer appears in the, uh, in the, uh, 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 diagnostic and statistical manual that's used to, to for diagnosing psychiatric disorders um, and, and rather recognized as a part of human diversity as it should be. But the, the, the barriers that that created are still there. Uh, and it's tough to take them down entirely because as we're, as we're uh, seeing uh, even though there are rare examples of detransition or retransition or just ending uh, temporarily even uh, gender affirming treatments, uh, <clears throat> those examples are held up by conservatives as an indictment of all of the treatments of transgender for all trans people. Uh, so, uh, and if there were no barriers at all, as some on the left would recommend, uh, then uh, presumably we would have even more people accessing uh, accessing gender affirming care uh, that they might uh, they might turn reverse course on. So what what some of the barriers do do effectively is put a put a time uh, a, you know a time uh, barrier that 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 you know at least it provides some sort of safeguard, I guess, is what the idea was. Um, I, I, you know, I stand in the middle of it because I do, I don't like to see anyone go down and have an irreversible treatment. And that's why we have the standards of care. Mm -hmm. And when those are really faithfully applied, the WPATH standards of care do allow for safeguards still for people that they have really thought long and hard about something that's going to be a permanent body change. Uh, but then there are also barriers, uh, just like physical barriers. If there's, if there, we're still uh, most of us who practice uh, good quality medicine have long wait lists. So people mm -hmm. have just through no fault of their own, they're just on a wait list and they just have to wait for care. Uh, that's fairly unprecedented, un unprecedented in most areas of medicine, mm -hmm. uh, where the supply meets the demand. But uh, for lots of reasons, uh, people, uh, there's, there are not enough providers, um, both at the primary care level and also at the specialist surgical level or endocrine level, uh, psychiatric level. So that's another barrier. And that means that those providers that do exist often do so in, in somewhat remote locations, even though they may be in a city, mm. if, you're, if you're in a rural community, you've got to travel distance to meet that person. Mm -hmm. That got better during the pandemic. When we uh, when we allowed for uh, for telemedicine, so where we could do uh, Zoom type um, consults, and, and that certainly helped. But again, uh, you know, you have to be careful there because it's nothing like an in-person assessment. And I always felt like you know that's it, you, we need to really 
and you can really organically relate to the person in their own environment and just do full observation. I feel like as a clinician, I still feel more confident that I know that person. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are just, and then, and you know, then there are, you know, there's financial uh, barriers too. So there's, you know, there are people, if you don't have, if you live in a state that doesn't believe in gender affirming care, for you know what they call uh, moral objection, they can exclude any sort of care provisions in their health plan. So that would mean that you're paying out of pocket. So the bottom line is that trans people are underserved. They they have limited access to care, and there are very there are relatively few providers to provide that care. Mm. So a whole myriad of problems. <laughs> this is very multifaceted approach, and it seems like a lot of, uh, you know. A lot of people in general have difficulty engaging with healthcare, but then, as you're alluding to, it seems like trans people, especially for our listeners, you and I are both based in the U.S. It seems like for trans people, at least here, they're facing all these different uh, walls that enclose upon them when they try to engage with uh, with this kind of care. And in other countries, you yeah. know, they're not they're not uh, necessarily uh, uh, Shangri La either. Mm -hmm. Some countries don't even have a, you know, a surgeon or they don't have a willing surgeon or they don't have a capable surgeon. Uh, and so they have to go outside of the country for those reasons. Uh, or they have, uh, they may have coverage through their, their national health plans, but they don't have a surgeon to refer to. Mm -hmm. So again, that basically is a barrier for people accessing care. Mm -hmm. uh, or in, if they have national health service, like in the UK, Sometimes it's up to five years now for getting an, an initial assessment if you're if you're gender diverse. Mm -hmm. So the so it's it, again globally it's 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 still a problem, mm -hmm. and I think it all is a reflection of that the world is still not, you know, there's there are a lot of people that are are <clears throat> um, politically correct, you know, they want to be supportive of liberal causes, but they don't understand the validity and the sincerity of people with gender diverse feelings in, in truly embracing and being able to explain uh, what gender diversity is all about and why it fits in with biological diversity. Mm. Well, a, a minute ago when you were discussing some of those barriers, I can imagine uh, coming across them leads to um, disparities in, in uh, health outcomes for for folks who are trying to seek care they need, but then they keep coming coming against these walls. And I, I feel that must also filter down to people who are particularly disadvantaged in society. I can imagine um, as difficult as it can be for, for a white person seeking care, it's probably even more challenging and more challenges appear for people of color who are seeking this care. I, I guess, how does that filter down for, for people in society who have other um, other existing uh, barriers and challenges on top of these trans-specific healthcare issues. Right. So it, it, we're just you know just scratching. You know, if you get the deeper you go mm. with access to care issues, the and of course structural uh, racism is is a, is an ongoing problem, um, not just for trans healthcare, but but healthcare in general. And again, some of the same issues of, of um, underfunding or under-resourced um, uh, and uh, or other just 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 uh, um, 
general racism that that people aren't you know maybe they're they're you know i i don't have any specific examples mm. but i mean there are, you talk to you talk to people and you know that those things exist um yeah plus the you know plus then even if you do provide find a provider sometimes if you if you're um if you're a cisgender person, uh, you don't find, you know, you don't have any problems with pronouns, et cetera, but you know, somebody, you walk into a place and if they're not going to treat you with respectful pronouns, I mean, that's a, that's another very intimidating factor. Or if you're talked to disrespectfully or condescendingly, um, that, that, you know, they have attitudes about gender that aren't supportive it's going to be also something that a negative experience that you may not want to return to mm -hmm. and i can imagine as a as a black or brown person um if you're you know you're going into a, a, a clinic and you don't see other people that look like you um that that would be that would be intimidating and mm -hmm. uh and maybe not pleasant either mm -hmm. um well well as you know at uh, resolve global health many of our our listeners are our policymakers and they're in the global and public health space. And um, we always think it's important to spotlight who is creating strategies to offer uh, healthcare to, to all different groups that we're profiling, in this case, uh, trans and gender diverse people. And I was struck by one uh, 2019 uh, report in Global Health 5050, and it looked at uh, global health organizations and 14 out of 198 surveyed um, quote, specifically recognize transgender people and their commitment to gender equity. And just 15 of those organizations had programmatic strategies that were specific to trans transgender health and actually referenced it directly. And um, I was curious from your perspective, what more could be done from either healthcare systems or, or global and public health organizations to better center and and spotlight the needs of, of trans patients and, and trans people? Well, I think we're beginning to see some of that changing, although again, unfortunately, in the US, it depends on where you live. Mm -hmm. um, but some recognition that that diversity is a valuable uh, endpoint or, or goal for society and that we should be embracing one another racially, socially, culturally, uh, maybe even religiously, although I, religion seems to be a barrier more often than not some of these days. Um, but but that, that diversity is a good thing, and that, that extends to, um, to gender, uh, something that, that may not be familiar to older people or pe rural people or less educated people but uh it's it has to do with the fact that we for we've we put a cultural blindfold on people telling everyone that you're either born a boy or a girl and that's it you know men are from mars and women are from uh, venus mm -hmm. and the fact is is as an obstetrician i was just talking to another obstetrical colleague of mine yesterday and the fact is, is that even the genitals don't always form as purely male or purely female. Uh, I was in Ireland last night talking with a gentleman and he was pointing out someone that he thought was, he thought was transgender and he made a very derogatory remark, not noting that mm. I too have been through that, mm -hmm. but he was, you know, you know, obviously he was 
taken a, you know, he took some fancy in me. So I, I dropped into the educational mode and I <laughs> said, you know, there are actually babies born mm-hmm. that have penises with two X chromosomes. And he looked shocked at me. <laughs> and I told him that there are babies born with female genitals who have a Y chromosome. I mean, these are not uncommon conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, gender and genitals cluster at the binary polarity, but there is a spectrum that crosses all levels. All genitals start from the same tissues. They all start female and they evolve uh, in whichever direction the hormonal or, or biochemical or chromosomal signals may, may dictate, but they don't do so perfectly. So there is diversity even in the formation of genitalia. And so, and the brain with its perception of maleness or femaleness, it really should not come as a shock to anyone that there is also diversity where it comes to gender identity. Mm. So that, that is a concept that I, that I think ha- once that is fully embraced and understood, and it's nothing to be feared. It doesn't mean it's going to be the end of families. It doesn't mean it's going to be the end of, of reproduction. It doesn't mean it's going to be the end of male and female or biology. But all it is is just changing language to have inclusivity and, and, and trying to, to reach across uh, intersectional boundaries that we, we put up. So, you know, trying to go through a lens, using a lens with, with, uh, that isn't gendered, you know, changing, well, you look bathrooms that, you know, I, now I don't really particularly care to use men's restrooms, but I will say, you know, ending the, the, the strict binary restroom designation, uh, you know, it, it, the lines are shorter. (laughs) 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 So, you know, there's a start, I mean, they're a little Mm -hmm. dirtier or, but maybe men are picking up a little bit too, Mm -hmm. but you know, uh, I mean, it's, you know, there are little things like that that just are, you know, having having uh, gendered inclusive language in your intake forms, uh, making sure that you know that that coding in your insurance forms, uh, you know, that men can have hysterectomies. That you know mm-hmm. that you know these are just little <clears throat> steps, gradual steps that that. Uh, you know, if you really are interested in in doubling down on diversity, that 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 you make it accessible for people to, uh, you're not encouraging that. We're not looking for new members in the gender diversity uh, club. Mm-hmm. We're just we're just trying to make it easier to live life and and not so exclusive that only cis people get treatment and only cis people get healthcare and only cis people get easy billing and you know all the things that go with medical care mm-hmm. and it sounds like education plays such a role in that that more inclusive reality that that um you know we should push towards uh i i, I know uh, wpath has their their standards of care um for the health and transgender uh, health of transgender and gender diverse people and, and guidelines that that other clinicians you know around the world can can follow and, and read about um, how can we better educate people to to recognize that uh, that more inclusive understanding of gender that you were just touching on 
Well, I think I think just uh, I think just staying involved, staying engaged, um, speaking out when there is um, uh, when there is problematic treatment of people that are gender diverse. Um, just having respect uh, for one another that you know that if someone is making an attempt to look female or male you know uh you, you could you know you ask their pronouns if you're not really sure um but but um but be open to the idea that that people are you know maybe in same-sex relationships um you know don't make assumptions that that's because someone has a partner that they're one sex or the other um you know, it's just, it's, it's just living outside of your own reality mm -hmm. uh, and, and in recognition that in the long run, this is a, this is a good path forward that where we're going as a society is nothing to be feared. Mm. In other words, it's, it's less about, it sounds like it's not changes that need to be made. It's just acknowledging the world as it is. And, and the fact that people exist on a spectrum of, of identity and experience. It's both, of course. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, I realize that, you know, that a lot of things that are not in one's control um, dictate how you feel and how you live and how you may react. But it is a lot of it is also experiential. And and, uh, you know, this is the value of things like books where, you know, where you can, you can drop, uh, anonymously into another life and read about the experiences. And so what, why are we afraid of that? Why are we banning books, mm -hmm. uh, in this country? You know, this supposed to be free speech and this is what books allow you to do. You know, you. Now, I remember uh, reading Little House on the Prairie when, you know, when I was young and, you know, how it would be to experience that, um, you know, reading about the Donner Party. How would it be to to be so desperate that you ate people, you know, you had to cannibalize to survive mm -hmm. most inhospitable conditions? Um, I, I have no interest in cannibalism, but... I was, you know, that's a story that is just so compelling, mm -hmm. um, uh, morbid. I mean, it, uh, but uh, you know, or, or to, to be uh, to recover from a plane crash. You know, this is what books do. And somebody with an LGBT experience, um, you know, how would that be to be to be in a male body in it, but attracted to males in a society that tells you you should be straight? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and the trans person. So, you know, that's what books are. That's the power of books. It doesn't mean that, that you're, it, it, they'll recruit new people. It means it gives you an insight into the struggle that someone has so that you can, your readers can be better educated um, and empathetic. You know, where is the kindness in this world and in this country? You know, it feels like we are losing that, that we no longer can can be empathetic without thinking that it's some sort of brainwashing. Mm -hmm. It's not brainwashing. We're just trying to teach people about the struggle of what it's like to to experience um, our own uniqueness. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know. Sorry, I kind of diverge, don't I? <laughs> yeah, but I feel it, it does touch on uh, this larger environment that we're in. And certainly here in the U.S., you know, this very specific time in our politics that seems to be uh, fomenting distrust and, and, and fear. And I know in the last time uh, we spoke uh, for Resolve Global Health, it was on an article similar, touching on some of these similar issues. And, and you were discussing the challenge that this environment can make uh, for clinicians who are providing care for trans people and gender diverse people. And and you mentioned, you said that that atmosphere was harmful and, and it can be hurtful for, for people such as yourself who are providing needed care for people. Um, how do you and, and your colleagues and, and people who are working in this space, uh, how does that atmosphere affect your work and, and how do you, uh, push past it in, in, in just needing to go about your day-to-day -day and providing care? Well, in my case, I'm fortunate because I live in a very supportive state. Mm -hmm. We're a sanctuary state. We're always going to have uh, access for trans persons here in California, uh, unless there's a, a federal uh, <clears throat> law against it, which I, I, I shudder to think. I mean, it would take a. I think it would take a real, um, a real autocracy and basically a, an overthrow of the Constitution in order for that to happen, um, because people do recognize that health, lives are bettered by trans care, and by by gender affirming treatment. Um, how to do that and how to address you know mental health crises of teenagers and and what's going on with with young girls and what their peers are and why they're feeling you know increasingly uh, you know maybe they you know they there's they're facing struggles and unrealistic expectations uh, for their own femininity but uh, but you know those are those are broader societal questions um, you know we know that gender affirming care is good so are, is, is effective. But as a provider, it's very discouraging to have these kind, this anti-trans rhetoric out there because number one, I can tell you what's happening is that, that young residents and medical students are, are, you know, for a while they were very interested in, in defining this as their career choice. Like they wanted to go into gender affirming care. Many still do, but they, some of this uh, misinformation and anti-trans rhetoric has, has filtered into their decision-making, no doubt. I mean, I can't say of specific, but then also people that are in practice, you know, they've done so sometimes at the, at the uh, risk of being marginalized mm -hmm. in their own medical communities, you know, it was sort of unpopular for a while. And there were people that didn't want trans people in their waiting rooms and in their clinics and things not knowing that they were passing trans people every day and probably didn't even know, but mm -hmm. still, you know, it was like those people, you know, it was, you know, so we've come a long way since then in a way, but I, I, I know of parts of the country where it just frankly wouldn't be safe as a, as a trans person uh, or an out trans person anyway. Uh, so, um, so it's, you know, in an era where we already have a, a relative, discrepancies in terms of healthcare access, um, this, this kind of open rhetoric and hostility towards trans persons feels very threatening to the individual themselves, but also to the providers that are there trying to, to, to maintain healthcare for that individual.
very troubling. Mm. Well, Dr. Marcy Bowers, you've been such a, a leader and pioneer in this field. What What's driven you and, and what drives your passion for this uh, field and, and just for healthcare? Uh, what, what has pushed you forward to, to uh, give back as a clinician and also be a leader in this space? Well, it's, it's very simple and that's just, I'm, I'm an optimist and, uh, and I tell the truth mm -hmm. and I tell the truth. I don't varnish it with, you know, I, I obviously, anytime you're describing a situation, you do so with your own experiences behind you. But, you know, I've lived, uh, half my life in one gender and half the other. And, uh, I'm open about that. I, I wouldn't have to be open about that, but I, you know, I choose to, mm -hmm. and, um, and people know of it, uh, but that gives me a lot of credibility. Uh, I know the struggles as a woman, I truly live a woman's life. I, I know how it can be difficult, but I also know there are a lot of joys that go with it. Um, and, and I know, I know what the transition process is like. I know what it's like to be gender diverse. I know what it's like to be frustrated or denied or angry, um, or scared and, uh, and discriminated against. Uh, so, you know, these are, these are, uh, injustices that I feel very strongly about, um, fighting. And I feel like, and I feel like the truth is really what sets us free. It really, um, uh, again, there's nothing to be feared about for, for expressing um, these sentiments, uh, we're, we are, we are a diverse planet and we're going to always be a diverse planet. And the sooner we embrace that, uh, and, uh, and share power with women, uh, frankly, uh, it's, you know, we're, we're not going to get to a place of peace. Mm. Well, sounds like, uh, telling the truth and the truth setting us free is a good note to end on. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Bowers, thank you again for, for taking the time. And uh, I was curious, uh, I know you have a website and you're on social media. For listeners who want to connect with you or your work, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, MarcyBowers.com is a very helpful website. <clears throat> That's our clinical website. Uh, if you want to just follow me in my personal life, I'm on Instagram at MarcyBauer76. And we have a couple of Facebook pages as well. So cer certainly welcome. Nothing on TikTok. <laughs> no TikTok. Another subject. That I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think there's a fine line between good judgment and, and being, I, I, yeah, I'm not in the business of marketing. We just, mm -hmm. we just do what we do and mm -hmm. we try to do it really well. So. Mm -hmm. Well, well, thank you again. And, and uh, to our listeners who are tuning in, uh, make sure to listen to our past episodes of Resolve Talks. They're on Spotify, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, to learn more about Resolve Global Health, and you can read our special report on closing the gender gap, which touches on some of these issues that we touched on today, as well as our companion article that also features Dr. Bowers, you can head to our website, uh, that's resolveglobalhealth.com, which would be written out as re-solveglobalhealth.com. And uh, join us next time as we continue to engage policy leaders and healthcare workers and advocates alike in, in discussing how we can build healthier societies around the world together. Uh, Dr. Bowers, thank you again so much. It was really, really a pleasure. Mm -hmm.